1: podcast. We're entering the late stages of the World Cup. And this podcast is entitled The Unfinished, because it's dealing with teams that are in transition teams that haven't reached their final version. Teams that are work in progress, and I'm joined again by the wonderful Michael, and in the background, the silent and ever-present producer Ryan. Michael, welcome again.
2: Hello, how you doing, Mason?
1: Very well, thanks. Very well, very well. Yeah, let, let's get right into it. There's so much to uh, so much to talk about. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's um,
1: it's been a wild World Cup, hasn't it? It's been <laughs> crazy. Scale,
2: still, still getting our breath back. I mean, I don't think it's been any more wild than Belgium versus
1: Japan the other day. What a, uh, <laughs> what a game. Did This game reminded me of, um, for any slightly older viewers uh, or listeners to this podcast, the Romania-Argentina game in 94. I in remember terms, it. Yeah, yeah, right. A team that could have won the World Cup in Romania that came out of nowhere, really, and just shocked Argentina. Mm. And I think there were elements of this with the Japan performance. They yeah. were so tight, so technical, tactically aware. And What I loved about this game was it was really Belgium coming of age. I think we hadn't really seen Belgium pull out all the stops, and specifically players like Kevin De Bruyne and Eden Hazard, and to an extent Lukaku as well, really coming through and delivering in a match where they're expected to be the big players. Mm. It was a shame for Japan; they
2: were so so good. They really deserved it, didn't they?
1: Yeah, and I think it was funny because you see the coach at the end saying, "This is a tragedy for Japan." and what did I do wrong? The tactics wrong. It was really sort of this sort of soul searching, brow beating. <laughs> but it shows sort of, you how far they've come because um no one really expected them even to get out of that group. And they you lost know, their I, coach actually. Let's, let's can we give credit to Japan? Because yeah. they lost their coach. I think it was a uh, Halo Hodgsich mm. who had actually coached Algeria at the previous World Cup. Mm-hmm. So very smart guy, great yeah. on the counter. Um and they replaced they replaced them their coach like a month ago, two months ago before the mm. tournament, which is almost no time at all. Yeah. And they pulled out that. Incredible yeah.
2: showing. I mean, they've always technically been very good, Japan,
1: but they had something extra—a bit of, a bit of, um, a bit of know-how. There was game management. Yeah. There was a moment when they went two nil up, and they were absolutely pinging the ball about, yeah. and maybe could have got a third actually at one point, and they were just—it's always if you get a third, that's the killer, and they just left that door a little bit open. A team like Belgium, well? to be cynical as well, and poor Japan. I'm not saying they were kind of cannon fodder, but every team that wins the world cup needs a game like that does that make sense every every team needs a bit of a bloody nose well
2: croatia had theirs the other day as well yeah front Denmark, of their lives.
1: nearly but that's part of it like End if you look at all the world cup teams the winners you look at um germany in 2014 for example algeria with their bloody nose we'll get onto france in a moment but mm. argentina with their bloody nose mm. you know they're 2-1 down with what half an hour to go and had to pull it out of the bag mm. and belgium was an extreme example of that and what i love about belgium was They kept playing football. They didn't lump it. They looked for the gaps. They changed uh, their strategy in-game. They brought on Fellaini. They went Mm. more direct. They used the height. They used the presence. They Mm. recycled the ball well. And if you look at Belgium, it was just pure chance creation. Like, each of those three goals were, in their own way, like minor masterpieces. And that
2: will really please Roberto Martinez, because it's you know you'll take a victory however it comes i mean if you lump the ball long and it bounces in off someone's <laughs> back yeah. of someone's knee then you'll take it but um the fact that they stay true to what they're about right right there um, was a philosophy there and and and won that way against as we've already mentioned a really talented japan team um i think that would be very pleasing and the game they've got coming up belgium against brazil i think that could be the the, That's the pick of
1: the quarterfinals what's amazing about the Belgian-Brazil matchup is you've got Brazil almost playing a kind of early 2000s Juventus or a sort of proto-Atletico Madrid in the sense that Atletico Madrid aren't that interested in possession or midfield control, so to speak. They've got lots of very talented people that can run through midfield that break-up play. Paulinho and Coutinho are not, they're not kind of Fernando Redondo type continuity players who keep the play moving. They're players that basically raid Whereas Belgium are much more about midfield control, if that makes sense.
2: Musa, you like Fernando Redondo, don't you? I do. I've, I've so, noticed this. Yeah,
1: yeah. I just <laughs> I just like players that keep recycling the ball and keep up the pressure on, on opposition defences. Yeah. Like players like Dembele, players like Fabregas, mm. players who keep the ball in rotation. And Brazil don't really do that. They mark very, very well centrally they push out to the flanks and shut you down well you mentioned Spain uh
2: sorry you mentioned Fabregas there and um the other day when Spain lost to Russia Fabregas made a really good point on on the BBC's coverage that Spain in that game were keeping the ball um as a means of defense rather than a means of attack right and there's a real huge difference there and you look at the Spanish team of 2008 2010 they would keep the ball but they would probe you know, they would make the short passes, you know, we know about Tiki Taka, but it was, there, there was an end goal there as a purpose. Um, the Spain, I mean, we're not going to mention Spain too much in this podcast, but I think that was perhaps their, their, their
1: undoing. Well, I think that's a great point. If we look at, if we look at Belgium in contrast to that, if we look at the concept of this podcast as being, you know, teams being unfinished versions of themselves, you look at Spain and in retrospect, of course, they were unfinished because they had all this great passing. They had all this technical ability, but they didn't have a focal point for their attack. They had Isco who was like sort of nibbling about on the edge of the area, you know, sort of rolling his foot over the ball, but not really penetrating with the passes. The movement ahead of him wasn't that great, which, you know, Iniesta, who I absolutely adore, came on and changed the game, I think. Yeah, I think Iniesta should have started. But I mean, yeah, we, we can say that in hindsight because I think with Iniesta there are stamina issues but I think he should have certainly come on earlier. And there was a crazy stat going around that I think Spain completed over a thousand passes in that game. I mean, five times as many as Russia, but I think just over a dozen went to Costa, some stat like that, which yeah. is, it just shows there Therein wasn't... Therein lies the problem, right? There's no focal point for the attack. And you've got to
2: feel for Costa because he's, uh, well, not too much. Is <laughs> Costa, but he, uh, he's a, he's a, a clinical finisher, right. but he needs the ball in the right areas. And you'd expect Spain with their talent. I mean, I thought, I, thought, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Koke, but I thought he was terrible against mm. Russia. I thought he was awful. And when you've got players like Thiago Alcantara on the bench, um,
1: you know, I heard and in the Ester, Well, I heard Russia. something great from a friend of mine about Atletico when they're doing really well. He said, look, the way to beat Atletico Madrid is to give them the ball. <laughs> they're not used to having it. And yeah. like, you know, Koke is basically the, he's the epitome of that. Like yeah. he had the ball against... Yeah. Russia, he had the ball plenty. And they didn't hurt them. They weren't looking for the catch. He was playing passes.
2: far too deep, Koke, to, to, to have any kind of um impact on the game. And when he did get the ball, he just didn't seem to know what to do with it. And that's where I I think France really uh, sorry, Spain really shot themselves in the foot by by getting rid of the coach. Um, uh, uh, yeah right. like I mean that's just insane I mean we knew it was insane but you know Hierro has come in he's, he's doing his best um, he's done his best I should say um, but he's
1: not a coach Oh, of, he can't do game management. You know, you know, he, he, can't, he
2: He's just unable to make the the the, right. the substitutions that right. is is needed. He sh- he could have identified that Koke wasn't having an impact on the game and changed changed things around, but he didn't. And but you can't blame Hierro for that.
1: Can I actually? And can I just jump in there and give credit to Martinez again for those substitutions to bring on Chadley as a wing back, a move that was mocked by many people who saw Chadley in the Premier League, who was, I think, unfortunately right club, wrong time. Chadley in the Premier League now, uh, yeah. Spurs. But to bring on Chadley as a wing-back and to bring on Fellaini, to change the complexion of the team entirely... It you've turned out, out to
2: be an inspired
1: change. I it think. was absolutely inspired. So, you know, this is the thing. I want to give so much credit to Martinez for his game management mm. because I think that is where Joachim Love distinguished himself last time. I think Didier Deschamps for France, will come on to in a moment, somebody who seems to have found his best team, but also someone who makes smart changes. The fact he's found points. his best team is worrying for everybody else. Well, like I said, they were my free tournament tip and they still are just because they have the firepower. Yeah. Spain, Spain were mine, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Not to rub in, but let, let's get on to, let, let, let's um, make a transition from Belgium onto England briefly because they are a team that really are a work in progress, but I think in many ways a thrilling work in progress. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily because they're scoring a hatful full of goals all the time, but because they seem to have got streetwise.
2: I never thought I'd live to see the day <laughs> that, that England have some guile, some credibility. Right. Um, Ken Early, um, the Irish Times writer, who's gonna we're gonna speak to later in the podcast. He made a really interesting point that there's no greater humiliation for South American teams than to be made foolish or made to look foolish by the English. <laughs> but it's it's it's funny. But you know, England are starting to lay some of those ghosts to
1: rest. Do you know what that was like watching? England outthink Colombia was like watching Rafael Nadal beat Roger Federer on grass at Wimbledon. <laughs> it was like, you could see Federer's face going like, this isn't meant to be happening. Like, this, yeah. is, this is my <laughs> yeah. surface. Yeah, this you is. know, like, the Colombians were like, this is what we do. We slow stuff down. Mm. You know, we're pugnacious. We hit you on the break. Yeah, You know, we, we shoulder barge Raheem Sterling on the kind of, on the touchline. Like, and then Colombia were like, "How? This is like voodoo, yeah. you know." Like you know, you you're watching Federer. If you haven't watched that final when like Federer finally gets beaten by Nadal, you can Classic. see Federer. It's the shock. And I, what I love about England in this was they found answers. It wasn't pretty at certain points, but they ground it out. It doesn't have to be pretty, you know. Yeah. And we've learned it that. Lesson, to I think.
2: And you know, and much was made of um, Gareth Southgate's decision to field a weak team against Belgium, who. But it did the same, by the way. Right. Let's not forget that. Right, right, I thought it was the right decision at the time. And I think it's proving to be the right decision now. Um, Colombia should, on paper, be the biggest stumbling block for England. Hmm. I
1: mean, England should beat Sweden. With the greatest respect, they should beat Sweden. They should because Sweden aren't brutal as finishers. And England have got finishers. Exactly. This Sweden
2: can defend and it will probably be a low-scoring game again. But, you know, as you said, this is an England team with a bit of guile. Mm. A bit of, um, you know, they, they know how to, to, to, to grind out results in a way that they weren't able to do in the past. And can know? I give
1: some credit to Ria Ferdinand because he had a great piece of punditry uh, about Jesse Lingard. And he said the ability of Jesse Lingard to play one touch at speed is, is, is really extraordinary. And he said that Lingard would have fitted into the old United team, which is really fascinating because Lingard is a player who I think has been a little bit maligned. Criticised by myself in previous years for not quite having the end product, which he does have now. And I think that ability is going to be so vital against Sweden because we've seen what they can do against Germany. They can sit deep, they can absorb so much pressure and actually they can break and hit you hard. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think Harry Kane, besides Jesse Lingard, has been England's most important player. Wonderful. Um, yeah. the, the way he kind of, he's, he's that foil for, for um for Kane in a way sadly that Raheem Sterling hasn't really been and I think that there might be a couple of changes actually ahead of the next game because England you know th- th- this was a Colombia team that were without Hamas Rodriguez and then England won but they didn't right. they d- they weren't always brilliant especially as the game went on they let Colombia back into it um, and more ruthless teams, your France's and Uruguay's, I think would have put actually, that game to actually,
1: bed. I think, yeah, I think Japan would have put them to bed. The, mm. Japan, the way Japan evolved from the first game of the tournament, the way Japan played against Belgium mm. would have beaten most teams, I think, in the tournament, yeah. frankly. Uh, let's go on to Brazil, actually, because we, we can circle back to England, but I want to talk about Brazil because their resurgence, their rebirth has been fascinating, their regeneration. They got destroyed in the semi-final against Germany, seven-one, and now they're back. They're perhaps joint favourites. And what amazes me about them is their ability to find solutions to open up teams. I mean, Serbia and Mexico—pretty brutal opposition—and they they handled them with ultimately well, with ease. Well, brutal is a
2: word that um, I think Neymar has been quite familiar with in this tournament. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think he's he spent fourteen minutes on the ground right at this tournament. Um, which, um, whether all of that is a result of being genuinely fouled or not, um, but he has been that he's been targeted, and that's why I think, um, Philip Coutinho has has shone
1: um, some of the attention has has been, perhaps too much on Neymar, which is I think the strategy. I think I can just say to in relation to Neymar. He is an unlovable character, unfortunately. Mm. He is unlovable.
2: He's become unlovable. He
1: has because, you know, when Neymar arrived in Europe, the incredible reputation at Santos, um, you know, was having so much fun up front with Messi and Suarez. And I think now the diving, unfortunately, has become the prominent part of his game. I mean, the memes, if you look at the internet, the memes are not in his favour. No. Uh, I think this is a player who's been kicked from pillar to post very early in his career yeah. and has developed diving as a coping strategy. But I think it's become a monster. I think it's, you know, it's like the algae. It's overgrown his game and it needs to be reined in. And
2: let's not forget that Neymar carried Brazil from the
1: very start of the 2014 tournament to the point that he left on a stretcher with a broken back. Yeah, the metaphor. I know. eh? It's like, yeah, he carried the team. But now we've got multiple leaders. We don't just have... Daniel Alves, Thiago Silva, who actually is not so much of a leader, Funny enough, is technically gifted, but not really, I think, mentally the main man for that team. We've got leaders like Miranda at the back. You have Alisson, superbly composed. You've got so much uh, less let's mental just, Let's t- just
2: appreciate how good Alisson
1: is. Hey, hey. Look, almost any other national team would have Edison as the keeper, mm. but he hasn't had a sniff. Yeah, The composure. And it, can, can I just say, for Brazil to have <laughs> truly great goalkeepers is... It's once
2: in a generation, to be honest. Absolutely. Edison can join Ter Stegen, Manchester City, Barcelona keepers. Right, right. In yeah. the shadows. Wow, it's wild, isn't it? It's
1: wild. They can't get games.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah,
1: I think Alisson is on course to be, you know, the the new Buffon or something, I think. It's extraordinary, but then yeah. with incredible technical ability on yeah. the floor. And, you know, just looking at Brazil again, what I love about players like Willian, for example, is that even they're not playing that well in an attacking sense, defensively they're so solid. William almost reminds me of you know, Florent Malouda in that sense, incredibly gifted defensive winger, who is always a seven and a half out of 10. Always, you know, his, his, his base level is always a seven and a half out of 10, which is essential. And then can I say credit to Paulinho because this is a player who's been much maligned, but who has played more minutes than any other player under Tite. So he's emblematic of that style. Paulinho's ability to find space where very few other midfielders can.
2: Well, you Isn't know, Paulinho is a, a symbol of this kind of new pra- pragmatic Brazil and under Dunga um, Brazil kind of took that turn, mm. but it was a bit too pragmatic right? and in the end it, it didn't work. Um, but Tite has kind of, he's hes taken that, that basic element and evolved it a little bit and they've got some, you know, it's Brazil, they have flair, they have style, it's great to watch, um, but they're... Really, really difficult to beat. I think Belgium are about to find out. I want to
1: almost throw this in there. I feel like Paulinho is the new Kleberson. You look at two thousand and two. Kleberson <laughs> was brought in for Janinho. And Didn't he, necessarily give you match control, but was decisive. Yeah. In in the way that he broke from, the way he broke from midfield. Well, he was an all rounder, box to box. Well, it's funny because we're coming up to uh, Brazil, Belgium, and we mm. had that in two thousand and two, and what happened there? Mm. Belgium were very tough to break down until very late in the game. Who broke them open? Ronaldo and Kleberson. Mm. You know, the, R- R- Rivaldo and Kleberson. they broke them open. So I feel like this kind of pragmatic, sacrificing possession, but ultimately when the game is in the balance, they win the arm wrestle.
2: And interestingly, Brazil haven't changed their team throughout this tournament. They right. haven't really tinkered. Um, you know, you've got players like Douglas Costa, mm. who come off the bench and can make such an impression. And still hungry to do so because he's fighting for a starting place. But (laughs) as good as he is, I don't think he's going to get one. I think this Brazil team is
1: settled. Cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break. After which, Ken Early, the wonderful Ken Early of the Irish Times, will be talking to Ryan about the prospects of England. So
3: I'm delighted to welcome to the Rabonin podcast, Ken Early from the Irish Times, the second captains. Ken, welcome.
4: Ryan, how you doing? good thanks man how are you very good never better actually yeah a great time having a great time out here in the motherland <laughs> in uh, nestled in her welcoming bosom so <laughs> it's all very good
3: i wanted to talk to you about england because you were at the game last night and uh you wrote a really good piece for the Irish times today about the game i found it interesting about the grassroots not being so good in england and how this isn't obviously a result of an obvious process that's been going on in english football for a while yeah so why do you think things are different this time around than they seem to be in past tournaments
4: well it, it's it is kind of interesting right because if you look at the way um say if you look at uh, four of the last five world cup winners i'm going back to france 98 um, brazil 2002 well brazil or brazil brazil are kind of uh, a special case um but then italy 2006 um spain 2010 and Germany in 2014. Around each of those World Cup wins, a kind of uh, narrative was constructed. And um, by, I mean, it's one of those things of success, you know, having a thousand fathers. And yeah. so, it, this is the reason why, for instance, Gerard Houdier got a medal uh, was was able to, was able to wangle a medal out of France winning the World Cup in 1998 because he got a lot of credit as a sort of technical director who'd created this winning structure of French football. Whether he had or not as immaterial, he got credit for it. In 2006, Italy managed to win the World Cup in an unexpected way. Uh, and a lot of the credit for that went down to their um, superior understanding of tactics. This is like, Italians just understand tactics. They get tactics in Italy. They understand how to win football matches. And a lot of the credit for this was then assigned to the uh, Coverciano coaching college you know they've got this like uh, little monastic institution where all of the Italian coaches go and uh, learn how to be a really high level uh, tactician uh and and this was this was so great for Italian football down the years like if you think of all the jobs people got out of it you know Carlo Ancelotti Mancini you know in, in England uh, Capello uh, with the English national team you know what I mean it was like Italian coach Trapattoni with Ireland um Oh, let us let's have some of those Italian tactics. Then in 2010, Spain win, and obviously the Spanish win was kind of a, a, a very a very special win. I mean, they were so dominant, even though they only won the games one 0 But like they won the World Cup without anyone being able to take the ball off them. It was like no one had ever seen anything like it before. So then it was like La, La Masia, you know, all this youth coaching, enlightened sort of attitudes. No parents are are shouting "Get rid!" on the sideline, you know, Barcelona, Cruyff, all this kind of stuff. Uh, again, you know, that, here's another model to to imitate, uh, and obviously owing something to the Dutch model, which which was kind of the Er model, let's say. You know, the oh, the Dutch know how to how to make great footballers. You know, let's copy what they're doing. Then in Germany in 2014, Germany was kind of the most conforming to this narrative of all of these stories because it was like it could be traced back to England beating them in Euro 2000. And then Portugal, obviously, humiliating them even more, a couple of days later, um, 3-0, if you remember, Sergio Conte Sauer scored a hat-trick against Germany. The Germans were like, what What is happening? (laughs) Um, And they decided at that point, we need to change change everything. Um, The DFB, like a a bunch of uh, football federation types, uh, football uh, organisational apparatchiks got together uh, in a room, put their heads together and, and came up with the new model, the new German way. Uh, and, and sort of issued orders from the central authority to restructure everything, restructure everything about German football. All the Bundesliga clubs need to open these academies. The academies all need to uh, conform to certain standards. The players are going to sort of be trained uh, in technical skills. You know, enough of, enough of this, we mustn't we mustn't get, you know, <laughs> enough of that, enough of that stuff. Let's teach them how to, you know, kick the ball right and pass the ball to each other and do all this, uh, do all this sort of stuff. And what do you get? Like, years later, you suddenly get, you know, Marco Royce, and you get, like, all of these uh, great technical German players. This generation of players went and won the World Cup. So it was like, oh, there we have it. You can organize a World Cup win. So the point about it is that in each case, you could say, well, they've, they've obviously done things right. These guys have their heads screwed on. It's no surprise to me they've won the World Cup. You know, they all, they all know uh, th- these guys, stuff lies on these guys. So I just thought to myself, what if England win the World Cup? Like, what are people going <laughs> to, how do you explain that? How do you explain that? All you've heard. All you've heard for, for decades is the English FA sort of slavishly copying whatever model is fashionable at that moment, going, Oh, well, this seems to work. Oh, this seems to work. What if we have academies? What if we, you know, what if we have an under 18 league? What if we get real reserve football? What, you know, what if we have a ban on foreigners? Well, no, we can't do a ban on foreigners. Oh, stupid European Union. You know, all these, all these kinds of uh, sort of trashing about, never really knowing which direction they should take things and never kind of coming up with any good ideas themselves. And then, like, without them really noticing, I'm, I'm talking here about the uh, the kind of the FA technical guys who are, are always able to sort of maneuver their way into the photograph of the World Cup winning team and say, well, you know, obviously our work behind the scenes had a lot to do with this. Maybe those guys were going to be sitting there thinking, well, you know, maybe we have done things right in this country after all. Simply stand back and let the invisible hand do its work. <laughs> you know, we're the, we're the country that gave the world uh, free market economics. Uh, <laughs> behold... <laughs> Uh, the behold, the wonder of free market economics as it shapes the generation of young English players without almost any real encouragement or support from the FA or from the government or any of the sort of nice facilities or, or coaches, you know, qualified coaches. You remember when England got knocked out of the World Cup. So there's always articles about. Well, you know, in Germany they've got like uh, sixty thousand uh, UEFA qualified coaches. In Spain it's ninety thousand. In England we've got eighteen of those coaches. <laughs> you know, this is the, this is the problem. You know, this, this is why our players this is why our players can't play football.
3: Yeah, and you always get the so, uh, the prices of the courses and stuff, like that and how cheap it is in Europe and how expensive yeah. it is in the UK, etc.
4: Which which is true. All that stuff is true. And it is true that that there's nowhere near as many coaches, you know, per capita, per, you know, per kid. And then you've got the world's richest league, which is the most internationalized league in the world, such that it's really difficult for players to, you know, you've got all the young players who are being sucked into these big academies, Chelsea, Man City, you know, paying them loads of money. Um, And these kids, they're not using them in the first teams and they can't really get experience. So you also get the articles about, well, Spain have got, you know, uh, 60% of the players in La Liga are, are Spanish and you know n- none of the clubs in Spain have two cents to rub together that's why they have to play young Spanish players and what a surprise that they, that their players turn out to be really good better than our boys uh, you know and, and, and so on and so forth So on that, te- um, on,
3: on that hmm. kind of point then so do you think without getting too ahead of ourselves because it is only a quarterfinal place so far but do you think that most of that credit then lies with Southgate and Holland and any of the team that he's put around him in terms of they seem to have made the team a little bit more savvy and it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Euro ninety six team that Southgate was part of. So do you think mm. it's just a small change that is actually down to the staff and the personnel putting through for the lack of a, a wider, deeper grassroots plan?
4: No, I don't I don't think they deserve most of the credit. I think they deserve some credit, yes. Mm. Um I think that they have I think Southgate's been doing a really good job. I think that he's got kind of a good He's got a sort of a good demeanor, like he's kind of, he seems kind of steady. You know, if you compare him to Roy Hodgson, who was just flustered and sort of, you know, glancing around a little beady eyes, you know, (laughs) wondering where the next attack was going to come from. I don't think he ever really seemed at ease. And if he did, he kind of began to seem ludicrously complacent. Like, you know, what's this guy so relaxed about? Fabio Capello just wasn't interested in... in, um, in sort of handling the players or, or, or understanding what, what they were about. You know, McLaren, I don't think they respected. Steve, uh, Svenjaer and Ericsson was just like, okay, how do I fit in all the most famous players? Um, so Southgate, I think, is doing a good job. Um, and he's made some, you know, I don't think he's picking the team on the basis of who's the most famous player, but I think he's helped in this. But I think, what I think is going on here, you know, England has always produced good players, but they've always been kind of stuck in English football. and. That's not the case anymore. I mean, Southgate says, or ha- has said, on a couple of occasions, we pick from thirty-three percent of the league, which is quite a unique situation. Now, Southgate is that when Southgate was saying that he he means it to illustrate how difficult his job is. You know, it, unlike uh, you know Germany, they've got a much greater share of, of players in their top league. You know, we in England are a little bit constrained. So many foreign players it's difficult, but. You've got to remember that the 33% of players in the Premier League who are English, which by the way is, is quite a lot of players, mm. are interacting, are playing with, training with, competing against the best players in the world from all over the world. Yeah. Maybe, okay, you know, you, maybe, okay, the very, very best players in the world are playing for Barcelona and Madrid. But, you know, I, I think on average, the standard of, of foreign football in the Premier League is higher than anywhere else in in the world. I mean as it should be, you know, if you if you're if, if if footballers follow the money, which they pretty much do, it makes sense that the league that pays the highest wages is going to have on average the the best players. It's raised the standard of play in the Premier League to uh, an enormous degree. Like Premier League football is is unrecognizable from what it was 15 years ago even. English players in Premier League teams are now playing uh, football, which is far faster and more sophisticated and more tactical, while I think retaining some of the good English virtues of you know speed and aggression and all of this sorts of stuff, but they've also had to learn tactics. I mean, look at the look at these England players like Walker, Stones, and Sterling are being trained by Pep Guardiola. You know, you've got the uh, Jurgen Klopp is at Liverpool, Conte uh, at Chelsea. Um, Pochettino at Tottenham, maybe the most, maybe the most important figure, considering that that uh, they've got so many of England's um, top players. These uh, players are being exposed to the best coaching brains in the world. It's it's it's the very it's the internationalisation of the Premier League, which English football has often moaned about in the wake of a tournament defeat. Saying how can we how can we compete our players. We can't even get in, uh, you know, clubs in our own country. You know what I mean? You know, you know, this sort of, this sort of uh, player, but actually, even though there's fewer of them, because the level is so much higher and because the influences are so much more diverse and because they're learning from, frankly, people who, who know the game better, they, they are, I think, more capable of, of bringing everything they've learned and using it on the international stage. Look at the, the formation that England are playing in this tournament is just one that would have been dismissed by previous generations. Oh, we can't, you know. You know, we can't, we can't. Oh. What, what what's what's this formation about? What do you mean, you know, we're going to have guys, we're going to vary the point of attack all over the place and we're going to have guys coming from deep and, you know, we're going to pass the ball around at the back and, you know, we're going to have a centre defender in stones who, who can't really defend, but is like a really good football player. Nah, not for me. You know, I mean, oddly enough, the the successful tournaments England had were like nineteen, ninety, and ninety six, and they were the ones they did vary the tactics a little bit. Maybe they were just lucky, like Gascoigne, you know, a, a kind of a a unique talent that they had to sort of help to make the team work. And they had a lot of good players in those teams. But generally speaking, it's been very rigid. It's been kind of four four two, and this this idea oh, that's what that's what English players are comfortable with. That's how they can you know express themselves. All that sort of idea um and that's different now they play play for clubs that vary formations within the same game they're expected to understand okay if we're playing three at the back this is what we do if we're playing you know if we're playing four three three this is what we this is where i need to be when the ball's over there i need to be here you know they they know these sorts of things now. they're not just making it up making it up as they go along it's what kind of used to happen and maybe you could get maybe that would work at a club where you could you know, have the strike partnership with your regular club partner, or have a good understanding with the winger. But suddenly, he goes to the international team. You're playing with different guys, and there's no chemistry. You you end up just booting it to the to the big lad, and that's that's what England were doing. Look, think back to 2010. You don't have to go back that far. Back to 2010, it's ML Heskey, you know, trying to win knockdowns for Rooney. And now look at them. Harry Kane is coming back into midfield. Sterling and Lingard. Are, well, Sterling particularly is moving so much, left to right, left to right. Lingard is moving back and forth, or uh, rather up and down the field. When Kane comes back, you often see Lingard move. And Lingard is getting free the whole time. I mean, the movement is really good. Deli Ali, another player who who understands the space, who understands movement. England haven't had this in, in a long time. So what, I, what I'm saying is I'm not sure that any individual or organization deserves credit. I think these players are products of an environment which is different from what has happened before it's English football has become globalized and internationalized and these players are learning they're surrounded on all sides by uh, higher level influences it's not just the kind of insular English football setup of before and I think that's what's beginning to that's what's beginning to pay dividends them here it is still only the you know quarter final so let's not get too carried <laughs> away but but if they're playing better football I think that's the main reason why one other thing I wanted to ask
3: you finally before we wrap up is in my opinion, it kind of felt like England needed a game like last night to, in terms of a hurdle to overcome. You know, you mean a hard,
4: you mean a, a tough game that, that, that, looked, we ha- like, that yeah, looked like that, they are going
3: to lose? Yeah, exactly. Conceding the equaliser that late in the game, I was watching it with four or five other English guys in a bar where we, everyone else was literally rooting for Colombia. And uh, we all looked at each <laughs> other and we were like, this is it. One of them went home as soon as the goal went in. He was like, I don't want to be here when we lose and just went
4: <laughs> no yeah
3: really? seriously um, but what do you think the mental importance of a win like that against Colombia will do for the team
4: well I think it's I think it's a big obviously to to, to experience a big moment like that of Euphoria together is, is a great thing for the team um, it's Everything in the world hasn't changed (laughs) just because England managed to win a penalty shootout, which frankly, their record has been an utter disgrace and it has been overdue. Against Sweden, it's going to be very difficult for England. I think it's going to be a really, I think it could be a very boring game. It's difficult to make these predictions often oftentimes an early goal and suddenly everything changes, the game goes crazy. But I would expect it to be a really tight game because there's so much on it. For both of these teams, getting to the semi-final of the World Cup is like you know Massive. I mean both of them it's Sweden did it actually more recently than England, but it's a gigantic achievement. So so much pressure and so so they they'll be so desperate not to make a mistake that I think kind of a caution could be, um, you know, could could be the sort of dominant emotional force in the game. I mean, Michael Owen, do you see Michael Owen's tweet? No. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily usually refer to, oh, did you see what Michael Owen tweeted? <laughs> he, did tweet, he did tweet something quite astute uh, where he said, we've beaten, you know, Tunisia, a pub team, um, and lost to the only decent side that we faced and yet everyone thinks we're going to win the world cup and i'm actually starting to think it as well you know come on england <laughs> which which which is kind of what's happened but at the same time doesn't really tell the full story and i think people feeling optimistic about england yeah yeah i mean i wouldn't i don't i wouldn't be as dismissive about it as you know some some previous times when you know, two thousand and six, when they kind of just played badly, got to the quarterfinal, and it was kind of like mm, English people thinking, "Yeah, you know, we're going to win the World Cup." And it's like, oh, "I don't think so." This time, especially with the way the draw is, you know, and the way that they're playing, and the and the potential I think they have that they still haven't quite expressed because that what it's it's like one intentional goal from open play out of nine goals that they've scored. They've they've had penalties, free, um, penalties, free kicks, corners. Um, the one-off Harry Kane's heel, and then the Lingard goal. Hmm. Um, and yet, and so, that, so that might suggest, oh, well, this is a team that sort of comes alive when the ball goes dead. But I I also think that they've had some good attacking play, some really good attacking play at times, which hasn't yet seen the sort of rewards in terms of goals that maybe they could have expected to get. So I actually think they could, you know, there could be even a bit more of that to come from England. But in, in addition to these sorts of, penalties and, and corner kicks and and whatnot uh, that have that have sort of helped them to get this far so yeah I, I can see i can see where the optimism is coming from
3: ken better leave it there thanks for joining us on the Rabona pod
4: no no ryan great talk to you
1: on to france now this is a team that started the world cup with one formation didn't quite work. They had that front three, I think, Dembele, Griezmann, Mbappe, Mm -hmm. almost like a false nine type setup. And they went back to the tried and tested 4-2-3-1 that they used against France in Euro 2016 when they beat them 5-2. And that seems to be the one for them. They now seem to have a settled 11. And these teams, you know, France and Brazil now have, I think, quite frighteningly, they've understood the full extent of their powers. How do you feel about France in this tournament? my favorites for the uh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: let's not forget that Sorry. well i think brazil um w- where they're different is that they've always known from the beginning of this tournament their strongest 11 right um and you know that they've continued on that same path it's different to see and it m- more interesting to see france evolve as you say and and and just and test Test around with a, a different formation, a different front four. Um, obviously, it's always going to contain Griezmann and Mbappe, right. but those support players are so are so crucial. And seeing France, uh, let's be honest, not play very well in the group stage, but get the result right. shows that there's a kind of inner steel to them. And I think, you know, they've they've they've already come through the last sixteen. They've got a fantastic game against Uruguay coming up. Right, it's really difficult to to, to pick one a winner from that, but have to say France just about because they're the team that are developing throughout this tournament
1: they're improving Mm. um,
2: and they're moving in the right direction
1: there's a firepower I think that France have and there's a way that they create chances we look at the goals against Argentina and what's striking is their variety they score on the counter um, they score from a penalty they score from they they they can hit you from open play from distance they can hit you like when you're sitting deep They can break you down. You look at the way the midfield's playing now, like Paul Pogba, who, you know, much maligned for his inattentiveness on the defensive side of things. And I think he recovered the ball 10 times, which is twice as many as any other France player against Argentina. So playing with a rare discipline. Yeah, well, those kind of statistics will
2: be encouraging for Duchamp. I mean, he's a guy that that he wants everyone to, to work. He doesn't take any passengers. And, you know, if Pogba's not pulling his weight, then he's got an abundance of options. Taliso, who, by the way, is the only Bayern Munich player still left in the tournament. That's incredible. <laughs> he's got Taliso on the bench. You Someone said him. Huddersfield
1: Town had scored more goals at <laughs> the, the World Cup <laughs> <laughs> than Bayern Munich. <laughs> I'll have to check that, but I think it's, I think it's true. I I think worrying
2: it's times for Bayern. Incredible. I do like.
1: Kovac would be too happy about that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's an element of France still trying to, um,
1: figure out what their their best eleven is, but they're getting very, they're getting closer and closer of every game. Can I give credit actually? Sorry to jump in, but credit to a couple of players in the France setup who maybe don't get the headlines they deserve. Matuidi, who is kind of playing that um, defensive winger that Sissoko played in the last tournament, 2016, year 2016. This kind of like shore up the flanks, stop the fullback breaking, stop the winger and getting behind you, and Olivier Giroud who is absolutely terrific at being the pivotal man for the attack and not just receiving the ball, but really a a deceptively good playmaker, really good at the one touch stuff. He is, um, he's underappreciated. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I think he's a player who, you look at Serginho in the 82 Brazil team, who again was very much criticized, didn't score enough goals, you know, wasn't that Good technically, was not fair really. That team was extraordinary. That was an all-time team mm. in terms of technique. Giroud is a player who people might look at as a bit cumbersome, but I think he's a bit like Ozil in the sense that he is criticised so much unfairly because you need to put the right pieces around him. Mm. And I think rather like Lukaku, when you put Giroud into the right kind of team, the team just elevates. He gives you so much more than goals. Mm. You know, just circling back to Belgium for a second. What I love about Lukaku in that game was You know, he missed two very good chances, two good headed chances, very presentable. But the run he makes, you know, he makes the run inside then out Mm. for the final goal and then steps over it to allow Chadley to come through and finish. You can see Lukaku making very, very high quality decisions in real time. In the same way that you saw Giroud when you know in France broke to score that decisive goal against Argentina, you see Giroud as the counterattack begins, just working everything out mm. and delaying that pass from Mbappe to finish was just like exquisite.
2: I mean, you mentioned Lukaku there. I think he's he's been phenomenal in this World Cup, and I think Jose Mourinho should maybe have a look at how Belgium are playing and think this is how we can pay a bit more to Lukaku's strengths. Right, right, balls in behind.
1: Yeah. You know, get someone who can actually cross the ball for starters, <laughs> but that's... Something that we won't, this is not a United podcast. You won't get into that yeah, too much. I'm sure that will be for the future. On this podcast, we're talking about the unfinished, the concept of teams that are very much a work in progress. One of those, unfortunately, for Germany, uh, who've gone out, um, was Joachim Löw's side in Russia. And for that, we're going to have Uli Hesse, live in Berlin, talking to Michael.
2: So, Uli... The um, the dust is is settling on on Germany's disastrous World Cup. Um, quite simply, what what do you think went wrong, and where where do they go from here?
0: Well, disastrous is putting it pretty mildly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was uh, it was historic, actually. Um, in many ways, maybe we can talk about that in a moment. Um, but since you asked for the reasons, um you know, we, we've had a couple of days now and the more we hear from the camp, it's it doesn't seem to be about individual players, it seems to have been, the main problem seems to have been the atmosphere uh, within mm-hmm. the team, you know, which is which is a very strange and very un-German mm-hmm. uh, because that has always been the biggest strength, yeah. of course um, the team's biggest strength and for numerous reasons, uh, Joachim Löw Fail to do what he normally does best, which is you know create create team spirit, yeah. and um, this this sort of atmosphere that can carry a team. Yeah. Do you think there
2: was a bit of arrogance going into the tournament? Um. Yeah.
0: It had a bit of a whiff about that. Yes. Yeah. Um. But not not on not, not on everybody's part. Arrogance is probably t- very str- a very strong word. Mm. The let's let's let me put it this way: the men who run the team. They seemed a bit arrogant. Yeah. Uh, in many ways. Um, just for instance, m- maybe something we can come back to in a minute. The German FA extended Loew's contract. Mm. I uh, wanted to talk which, to you about we, that. That seems shortly controversial. Before, shortly before the tournament. Yeah. Even though they were still, you know, it was not running. It was running anyway until the next tournament. So th- this was a very strange gesture because that. Well, it probably wasn't intended that way, but it reeked of it reeked of arrogance. Yeah, I'm you know, sure it was
2: intended as as a as a, a, a um, an endorsement of him to a, a kind of vote of confidence. But it but it went beyond that, didn't it?
0: Yeah, it's because you know for every other team, you know, I mean, even for this team, the tournament is what counts. You know, I mean, you know, Loew is running around Freiburg, you know, taking the sun in and drinking an espresso <laughs> for most of the year. So this is, you know, where he has to deliver the tournaments. But to extend his contract even before the tournament sent out the strange signal that either he's totally untouchable, you know, or that Germany was so sure of playing another good tournament. And I think that was the main reason, you know, sure. they were they were absolutely sure. They knew they were among the favorites. And the one thing they always talked about was was was uh, winning the World Cup again. You know, became the first team since Brazil to defend the title, which was. A, certainly a possibility with that team. But it was, that was pretty, well, again, arrogance through too hard, but they were very, very self-confident.
2: What, what do you make of Joachim Lurf himself? I mean, he's, as you mentioned, he's staying on until 2022, at least. Um Do you think there's a little bit of the Arsene Wenger thing here, that he's maybe a bit too proud to acknowledge his own shortcomings?
0: Yes, it's that. It's also, I really can't see him taking on a club team again. <laughs> mm. I mean, he's he's found the job. For him, it's a dream job. Yeah. But anyway, as I as I said for The Guardian, um, I'm really surprised that he's staying on because, you know, we have this unwritten rule in Germany that if you go out in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, um, you're gone. <laughs> um, you know, the only one to, to, to break that rule was Bertie Fogts, who went out in the quarterfinals at the 94 World Cup. but You know, the same thing four years later. Sure. He basically had to uh, Betier had, had to resign. Lewe may have been able, well, Lewe would have been able to break that rule just because, you know, he, he, he's, he's got great merits and he's, most people like really like him and like the team. And maybe he could have even survived going out in the semifinals against Brazil. You know, but the group stage, you know, coming last in the group stage, yeah. that is, you know, I thought it would be unthinkable for him to stay on. Mm. But again, the German FA had committed themselves so early, you know, extended his contract there was just no way they could fire him now. So I thought uh, he would take the responsibility, you know, shoulder the responsibility and step down. Mm. But he didn't. Also probably because there's nobody to take his place, apart from the guy who's at Anfield right now.
2: (laughs) I wanted to ask you about... um... A couple of the senior players as well—they—they they really didn't really pull their yeah. weight in this tournament. Um, you know, I'm thinking Sammy Kadira, he's been—he's yeah, yeah, yeah. been singled out, but, but also Thomas Müller as well. He's another. Um, Jerome Boateng showed a kind of lack of discipline when he was—he was sent off against Sweden. Uh, I mean, what do you make of that? And and Germany have such a good crop of young players that we saw at the Confederations Cup last year.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you asked about arrogance, and I said, "Well, you know, sort of, you know, the people who run the team—they appeared arrogant in a way. That, that was not what the players did. I don't think the players were arrogant. Uh, the players were more like complacent. Complacency—is mm. is that the right word? Yeah, it, I think it, it so. Is, because yeah, you know, Xabi Alonso had an interview, did an interview quite recently in which he said, and uh, because the same thing happened to Spain, you know, actually happened to four of the last five, you know, defending." Um, World Cup winners, they went out in the group stage. And, and, and Xabi Alonso said that the, the Spanish players all went into the game thinking they were World Cup winners instead yeah. of thinking we want to become World Cup winners. Sure. And, and he said that, you know, those few percent, that's just enough at this level to, to, to ruin your game. And then, of course, you have the younger players. You know, I mean, there was there was a, a visible difference between you know the way Marco Reus approached the games and Julian Brandt and even Timo Werner uh, compared to the others. You know, as a
2: neutral watching on, I think Germany's strongest players were, you know, the the likes of Marco Reus who were a, a bit more hungry, let's say. Do you think the felt, older players were not as accepting
0: of the younger ones? Yeah, maybe. Well, what we hear is that many of the younger players felt that they should be given more playing time and that Löw was, you know, playing his favorites, mm. which to be fair to him is, is you know, is something that has stood him in good stead yeah. for, for, you know, for the major part of his, his his Germany career. He's always done that. You know, he's always played his Podolskys and Kloses, even if they were, you know, struggling uh, for their clubs. And they always came through for him. Mm. And he probably thought it was going to happen again, but it didn't. Exactly, And then when they you see come.
2: someone like Leroy Sané being left out of the squad altogether, it doesn't really send the, the, the best message to, you know, the likes of Leon Goretzka and Julian Brandt who are there pushing for a place.
0: Yeah, it's probably personally, I think it was, I think it was the, the one that sent out the strongest message was, was the Neuer decision. I mean, of course, everybody knows that he's a great goalkeeper, you know, but, you know, Ter Stegen played fairly well for the Germany team. He did really good for Barcelona. He had a good season. And, and and to bench him and then play someone who hasn't played in almost a year, you know, just because he's Manuel Neuer, that's I think that was taking things a bit too far. Mm. Maybe some of the players felt that uh, you know, lose what used to be um, you know, what used to be loyalty was now becoming favoritism. Mm. Um it's also that I mean, I think Luv Realized this quite early on. I think he realized he had a he had a problem there, because he made a lot of changes, and he's he's not normally a coach who does that. You know, Do to you, bench Misiluzy after the first game, it was uh, well quite a radical measure for him. You sure. know, he made many changes, not always the right ones. It has to be said. Lot, lots of people, me included, wanted to see Leon Goretzka in that team. Uh, you know, he the the new Bayern player because he carried the Confederations team. Mm-hmm. He is, you know, he, he's physically imposing. He's good. He was angry. But when he finally played him, he played him as a right winger, oh. but he's a defensive midfielder, you know. Yeah.
2: Uh, so we're we're still in the thick of um, this wild and really exciting World Cup. But do you think um, in a, a couple of months' time, when Germany reconvene and start to think about qualifying for the Euros, that there's going to be there's going to be pressure on on Lerf to bring in those youngsters and, and have a new Germany um, oh, yeah, and, absolutely, and, and yeah. show that he's learnt the lessons as a coach of this, yeah. this campaign.
0: Yeah. People will expect love to, to do that, you know, to be, be a bit more ruthless than he used to be in the past. And, you know, replace some of the veterans with, with younger, hungrier players. Then again, um, I think most people overestimate the amount of talented youngsters we have. Mm. Yes. Leroy is probably going to become a world-class player. And there's quite a few really, really good other players But they're not totally, you know, they're not quite on the level of where Thomas Müller used to be or Bastian Schweinsteiger used to be. Mm. And I think there is a structural problem which which we have, um, you know, targeted and which we have addressed, which was that for many many years we used to, you know, um, be a bit fixated on this Guardiola football. Mm. You know, Guardiola used to say that you know your best players should play midfield because that's where the game is decided. And so we've produced. Basically, produced midfielders everywhere. You know, <laughs> I mean, even our goalkeeper is a is, is, is midfielder. Um, um, you know, uh, you, you saw it at the last World Cup when when Leif began playing Philip Lama right back in midfield, and then suddenly had uh, you know the Ford's nines playing up front, which yeah. which were midfielders, because we really don't have many really good strikers. You know, people who can take somebody on, uh, good dribblers. And there's, yes, there's Timo Werner, but he's not a complete striker, you know, because he's not very good in the air. Timo so, Werner,
2: uh, I think, was at his most dangerous in this World Cup yeah. when he was playing in those wider areas on the left-hand yeah, side yeah, and yeah. cutting in. Yeah,
0: that's true. So we need to produce some more, you know, people who are individually strong and, and some more attacking people. Actually, people like Leroy Sané, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
2: we're, we're running out of time early, but I wanted to ask you um, about the... Mesut Özil and İlkay Gündoğan situation. Um, of course, they met the Turkish pre- president before the World Cup, and that was yeah. a hugely controversial move. And it seemed to stir some unwelcome emotions in in Germany. Do you think that that kind of set the tone in a way for the uh, the days that were to come?
0: Yes, it did. It did. It, it, this sounds like you know, hindsight is perfect vision, but a lot of people had had it strain, felt a bit strange about the team even before the World Cup had begun, because the preparation matches were awful. And they often are, but, you know, it didn't bode well. Mm. And then they went into the World Cup with this, with this Uzil Gundogan story, which was clearly, clearly not just affecting the two players. I mean, Gundogan was clearly affected. Uh, you know, at times, at times he seemed close to tears when he was booed. And so there was, there, there was a very, very strange standing off you know, um,
2: um, do you think, think that there's a chance that one or um, or both of them are even considering whether they want to play for Germany
0: again? Um, I think it will depend on what happens when the dust is settled and when we've all stomached this disaster and returned to normal, and what happens in the first few games. Um, it was it was a very un well unfortunate. It's, it's not strong enough a word. Um, um, a lot of people use the political angle of that, you know, um, with Gundogan and Uzil meeting a uh, president, uh, shall we say, um, who's seen critical in the West, um, use the political angle of that to actually be, well, not openly, but be slightly racist, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it has certainly stirred, it has certainly stirred a debate. Which we didn't really have in Germany mm. for some strange reason. Um, maybe it was maybe it was it was time that it was it was addressed, which it still hasn't been done properly. Because you know, for instance, in Switzerland there was a big debate about you know this uh, um, um, the players um, um, from, from from from Albania. Yeah, like Kosovo, and um, link, yeah. I, I remember in France in the '90s it was a big topic. You know how um, when they had the multicultural team how People felt about it, and we never really had that in Germany. You've never really had
2: that debate, I guess. That no, no, really.
0: Not really. but unfortunately, it's it's not happening now either because you know, it's um, as I said, people are at least this has been my impression that um, a lot of fans who are you know, have faintly racist leanings use the political angle of that to you know, to boot players like Öselin Gundogan. Mm.
2: Well, it's all very, very interesting. And it sounds like Germany have a lot on their plate at the moment. We've, um, we've run
1: out of time, Ali, but thank you so much for joining us.
0: Okay, Mike. It's been my pleasure.
1: And that brings us to the end of another episode of the Rabona podcast. Thank you so much all for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Same handle for each, at RabonaMag. You can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. Cheers for listening and we'll catch you for one more World Cup podcast in a few days.
0: Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.